how is our voice and our relationship to our voice actually all about our relationship to power? What did I do? What did all of us do in various rooms growing up to be like, oh, this gets me a little more respect. Your voice in the exam room may be forceful or timid, high or low, slow or fast, but which exactly is your authentic voice? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, part of the VEDEX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today I talk with Samara Bay. Bay is a voice and dialect coach to movie stars, politicians, and executives, and she's the author of the new book, Permission to Speak. As an actress, she lost her voice and went to a speech pathologist, which kicked off a journey for her, not just in the mechanics of how we talk, but how our voices develop over time. The messages we receive about how we talk is, quote unquote, wrong. Where is our real voice in all that noise? Let's find out. Of the voice and dialect coaches I've heard off the jump, I'm like, oh, it sounds like she could be a speech therapist, or it sounds like she could be one of the people who teaches actors how to put on accents for movies, or she teaches, you know, politicians how to be stentorian and speak properly for the audience. So describe to me your career trajectory. Which of those things do you tumble into? I love that. Yeah. So when you think about how voice and speech works, okay. you, the general public, um, there are these three categories, roughly corresponding with what you just said. But category one is in the medical field, right? Speech pathology, where you're working with patients. Way two is in the performance world, which can either be Hollywood or politics. I mean, not to okay. say that politics is a performance as in fake, but it is a performance as in how do I scale myself up and speak into a microphone like a human that people want to hear more of? <laughs> Okay. And then the third is academia, linguistics, you know, the world of study. So I am the second. Okay. Which means I'm really interested in the linguistics and I'm interested in the speech pathology. And in fact, part of my own voice story entails losing my voice for months on end in my 20s and needing to go to a speech pathologist to relearn how to speak. And I happened upon one who actually I think this is pretty rare, who was really interested in both giving me practical tips to literally rediscover my voice and, you know, get back to talking. Right. But also was willing to give me space to think about the psychological components of how we speak and what our relationship is to our own voice. And that has absolutely influenced my own coaching. So to really answer your question, I work with both actors in Hollywood and politicians, entrepreneurs, business types in the real world. And that was sort of a started out in Hollywood, moving into these larger questions that really my speech pathologist allowed me to consider around why, what our relationship is to our voice and the habits we've picked up that seem to be getting in our way and making it difficult for people to hear us or difficult for us to trust ourselves in these high stakes moments when there's perhaps a microphone and to ask, well, what's really going on there? And the linguistics comes in because actually inside of linguistic institutions, there's a huge amount of study, sociolinguistics especially, there's a huge amount of study of how each of us, and I'm really speaking to everybody listening, how each of us has adjusted based on every room we've been in, how to sound. Some of that's accent. And some of it is like, how do I sound unintimidating around more powerful people? Or how do I sound intimidating when I want to? <laughs> 
Can I ask about that? Were you always, it's interesting you framed your moment where you lost your voice and it sounds like you went for practical thing. Like in other words, you had a diagnosis, you needed treatment. You're going to give me whatever medicine I need to fix this. Were you always a lifelong learner where when your speech pathologist encouraged you to do some deep reflection about what does your voice mean about you? How does this tie into everything about you? Were you ready to do that? Or was that like weird? Like what? No, no, no. I'm just trying to get so I can talk again. I'm out of a job. No, I am the first. I am. I love that. I've never actually been described that way, but a lifelong learner for sure. My parents are both academics. They're really outside the box thinkers. I'm an only child. So definitely I grew up in a house of questions, asking lots of big questions. The questions are more interesting than the answers, that kind of a, you know, environment. And if I'm being totally honest, I had all these questions before I went to the speech pathologist. And this is the really sort of vulnerable part. And I hope if anybody else here has had experiences with your voice, that, that something in here resonates for you. The day that I got that diagnosis, I went to an ear, nose and throat doctor after these months of really dramatic attempts to speak and nothing coming out and it being painful and, you know, lots of drinking tea and trying to rest my voice, but nothing helped. And I finally went to an ear, nose and throat doctor. He stuck a scope a little micro, uh, a little uh, camera rather, up my nose, down the back of my throat, got an amazing photograph, amazing <laughs> by which I mean horrifying looking, but extremely useful photograph of my vocal cords with these little blisters, which suggest vocal nodules, the beginnings of hardened blisters, the beginnings, you know, the little sort of like red bumps you get when you've raked a lawn. Yeah. And I went back to, I was in the middle of graduate school. I had missed class that morning to go to this doctor's appointment. And I got back to class and my entire small but mighty, you know, class of 20 people were all in that room. I walked in, they looked at me and the head of the program said in front of everybody, so what's the diagnosis? And I said, you know, painfully, vocal nodules, I think I have to go on vocal rest. And he said... Huh, just as I thought. Bad usage. (laughs) Which is right. Such a weird phrase. Obviously, it doesn't hold a huge amount of weight. It's not like we know instantly what that means. But in the moment, I knew emotionally instantly what that meant. I have gotten injured here, but I'm the one who did it. Yep. It's my fault. Yep. So when I went to that speech pathologist, yeah, I was like, what is my voice trying to tell me? Why would I pick up a habit? that then made me lose my voice and my ability to communicate. What is that? And, you know, now I've written a book that basically answers what 24-year-old Samara was really wondering. Okay, so this is interesting because when I listened to you on that podcast, one thing I took away, I thought, about two-thirds of the way through, you say, well, I've been warned that the two co-hosts, you might want me to make comments about how you speak. But I don't normally, I want to say, I don't normally do this. I don't judge the way people speak. I don't do this normally. And it reminded me of my dad I grew up with talking about grammar and describing to me at an early age the difference between prescriptive and descriptive grammar and saying, no judgment here. Descriptive grammar, this is how people speak. We're not. And when you talked about the academic linguistics, how do people speak? And maybe why, but not judging whether they speak good or bad based on that. Which brings in all kinds of moral stuff that does not belong in the world of practice. But we're used to prescriptive, like that guy who said bad usage. That means you, there's a way to use your voice good and bad, and you were doing it badly. Prescriptive, you're using your voice wrong. That's right. And actually, the more that I've gotten to know linguists, uh, I've interviewed some for my podcast and for the book. Wow, the whole 
you know, we, I don't know, what, what do we in the mainstream know about linguists? Nothing. Right? But what, if anything, right? What is the, how many languages do you speak? Which is also a misunderstanding of what they do. But the other is, yeah, like people standing, you know, in judgment. And the reality is actually that linguists are deeply progressive, you know, as a body. And that, that some of that progressiveness is because they are so committed to, as you say, descriptivism to what are we actually hearing? That's the story. What am I hearing? What, for example, in the case of me, why did I pick that habit up? Well, here's the answer. Now I know. I was speaking, the reason I got those little blisters on my vocal cords, I was speaking habitually, so just a habit I picked up, slightly, not even aggressively, slightly below my body's optimum pitch, meaning the general average tone, you know, of sort of up and down of my speaking voice. Why? Well, I had picked it up probably years prior in high school when I knew that I came across as a smiley girl and would always bring this, you know, warmth energy with me. But what could I do to counter it? I must have thought subliminally in order to make sure that I could get taken seriously. And you know what? That's a calculation so many women and not only women make subliminally. Wow, when I lower my voice a little bit or when I, you know, XYZ habit, I seem to get treated a little better. And so then linguistics is the spot and and my book and, and all conversations really about voice, I think, is the spot to go, why do we pick up those habits and when did we outgrow them or have we? How is our voice and our relationship to our voice actually all about our relationship to power? What did I do? What did all of us do in various rooms growing up to be like, oh, this gets me a little more respect or this gets me a little more ignored. This makes me feel safer. This makes me feel more likable. This gets me the job, right? Do you think most times, it sounds like part of the exciting thing about sitting down with a speech pathologist for a period of time was finally, as you said, I had these questions and hadn't really taken the time to go explore them so we could explore them. Do you think a lot of these things are done? I suspect the answer is yes. It's all implicit. Nobody thinks I need to lower my voice at the age of 12 or 10 or 15. I need to lower my voice. They just either do it once and notice something or they idolize someone and like, well, I'm going to do what that person does. Or how often is it actually, do you think, explicit? When people talk to you about this, do they say, I remember when I was a certain age and I said, I need to bring my voice up or I need to bring my voice down? Yeah, it's a great question. And for those of you listening, you know, take a moment and think to yourself, have you ever made a conscious effort to change how you sound? For example, maybe a mentor said, you'll never be taken seriously if you say like so much. And then you thought, um, how do I unsay, how do I police myself enough, right? There are bigger cultural questions I'm very interested in about why you might want to or not. But that's not how most of us react in those moments when somebody we admire gives us advice. We think, how do I take it, right? But, you know, the answer is both. The answer is both. You know, we, I think, have these cultural touchstone moments when people like Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes speaks in a lower register than seems natural for the body that she lives in. Yeah. And then it comes out that she's a con woman and a fraud. And we think, ah, I always felt that way. 
because her voice feels like it's a contrivance. And that's true. And yet, without the conning part of it, on some level, all of our voices are a construct based on what works. And what I like to point out is that for Elizabeth Holmes, that voice worked. Because you mentioned power, this is always my difficulty. I remember being in college and you're studying power oftentimes comes a lot of times out of communism, Marxism, a focus on you can look out at the world and say people's power over each other is what determines their behavior and how we should figure things out using power, either use or misuse of power. But that always runs sideways with this idea of authenticity. So one idea is use your voice for power. I want money. I want prestige. I want people to like me. I want people not to be scared of me. I want people to be scared of me. And then on the other side, what is your authentic voice? After a while, having all those layers with actors and actresses, layer, 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 layer. Who are you after a while? And we don't think we're like that, but I think we probably oh, are. Layer, layer, such layer. delicious questions. Okay, I okay, have good. some thoughts. I have some thoughts. So I'm going to tackle the authentic part second. But the power part is so interesting, and I love the way you articulated that. I think it's useful for those of us living in 2023 and feeling a sense of perhaps tiny fire, perhaps huge fire responsibility to show up as the type of leader that we would like to see in the world. And to me, that kind of thinking is really important. I think it's really important for us to have these conversations around power and I'm going to especially bring in what Dr. Amy Cuddy talks about in her book, Presence, based on that famous TED Talk. She talks about power to versus power over. So yes, this sort of traditional and quite honestly masculine coded version of power that's power over, right? Power over people, power over resources, right? Interesting, useful for any of us who've had those opportunities to have power over. Interesting to see what part of us comes out, right? I don't mean to demonize <laughs> it outright. I don't. But power to agency, self-determination, it's actually a really different kind of power. And it actually isn't about, you know, in relation to other people. It's in relation to our own best ambitions. And so when I'm talking about power, that's the kind of power I'm talking about, especially because then when we're in a leadership position, it actually isn't like, you know, the scarcity mindset of the first kind where if I have more power, you have less, but rather if I have power, how will I spend it to make sure everyone around me feels as wonderful as they humanly can so that we can all rise together, which, you know, sounds really Pollyanna-ish, but honestly, that's what the workspaces are that we enjoy being in. That's what kind <laughs> of leadership is in them. So this is where the authenticity comes in. So authentic, okay. like, look, we all can admit, I think at this point that the word authentic is so wily. It's hard to know, well, okay, how do I be? Okay. So authentic is trying to capture the spirit of things that feel true. How do I, you know, feel true? How do I bring truthness to my moments of, you know, whatever, my public moments? not even public, right? I consider like a single conversation with another person to be public speaking, really just leaving our house with any kind of ambition right. to be, you know, world facing. Here's my definition of authentic okay. for practice, for actual pragmatic, like what do I do when I open my mouth? To me, authentic is talking about what we care about like we care about it. So we all have a lifetime of practice talking about what we care about, but not quite revealing how much we care about it. 
we learned early on maybe that we seem cooler if we say, I care a lot about this, but I mean, I don't know, whatever, you know, right? Right? It's it's completely self-protective. You totally recognize it. Or for any of us who've worked in customer service or who are customer facing, right, in any way, or worked as a bartender and tips were your income, have learned how to over care, to care more than you actually do. Oh my God, that's so wonderful. Thank you for letting me know, right? We recognize that as sort of a pushed version of care. So the question is, what is this thing in between those extremes where we talk about what matters to us and we decide, we decide to take the gamble, to be brave and say, and with my voice and with my emotional availability, I'm going to show all the way up to make it clear I care about this thing I'm talking about. And now you know. Now okay. you know something about me that matters. I love – will you please say your definition for authentic one more time? Because I don't want to give the hypothetical. Talking about what you care about like you care about it. Okay. And you, it's perfect because you presented these two extremes. So one – I'll start with one extreme, which is a person you're talking to maybe cares more about something than you do in the moment. But you need to act as if you care more about that because of what you need out of the encounter. So you rev yourself up. And the example I give is, let's say you as a veterinarian have seen this thing a thousand times. And this person comes in very ramped up and they're very emotional. And you as a veterinarian are a doctor, a scientist. You've seen this a thousand times. You know this is not a big deal. There's no reason to get worked up about this. But the person on the other side of the exam room table is worked up about this. And many times when people are worked up about something, they want you to match their energy. So first I want you to tell, somebody says, I run into this all the time where I don't think this is a big deal. And I know factually it's not a big deal, but this person wants is asking something for me socially and emotionally. And I don't want authentically. I'm not excited about this. This is really a, what do you tell people if they say this is a problem where I'm not getting excited enough about it? I want to start on that side and then I'll go to the other side. Well, actually, I have a whole other answer for that. I mean, quite honestly, now we're in fantastic little interpersonal dynamics, right? You're absolutely right. I think that um, actually what that moment requires is not that you match their level of care, but that you match, mm, match isn't even the right word, rise to how strong and warm you can be in that moment to make sure okay. that they feel heard. So strong and warm, strength and warmth are these two separate dials. They're discussed a lot in the leadership world, right? And you have to do both at that time? You're saying you need to turn both of them up? Yeah. What okay. I'm really saying is, here's my shorthand. You guys are getting the real deal. Here's my shorthand. <laughs> the strength warmth dials, you can do a Google search. Harvard Business Review puts things out you know, every month about this. It's so fascinating and can sound quite clinical, right? How do I up this dial to 10 while keeping this dial at 10, right? How do humans... Oh, if it's really clinical, vets might like it. So this is good. Let's Perhaps, but when you're talking about an interpersonal sort of bedside manner dynamic, it can feel manipulative. And I'm just calling that out, right? But here's my favorite way to take it out of the realm of, of calculating and into the realm of, oh, yes, I remember how to be a person around other people, you know? And that's this. Strength is, I've got this. And as you mentioned, I'm a scientist. I am the person in the room who has the expertise. I've got this. And warmth is, I've got you. I'm taking care of you. So you don't have to care about the thing that they are struggling with that feels super high stakes to them and not to you. But I would suggest, if you are interested in meeting that moment, and having the kind of bedside manner that, you know, I think you probably want, 
is to think not just I've got this, but I've got you. That's its own authenticity, right? You don't have to match how much they care, care how much you actually care. But what are we talking about here? You're caring about the, you know, the anxiety around this, you know, medical issue that you know doesn't require anxiety. No, but you can care that they are worried for their pet. You know how to be worried. You know how to meet somebody, not to be worried, not to mirror their worry, but to hold the space for, I hear you. Don't worry, we've got this. This is interesting because I thought, well, I thought you were really, you're saying at that time, give yourself some internal mantra or tell yourself you've got this and then tell yourself, I've got you, I've got them inside. And then your voice will sort of mirror that they'll thinking it will cause the voice or is there a trick? Should they bring their voice down? Should they bring their voice up? No. Is there something they're supposed no. to do? No, I think it's simpler than all that. I mean, I, I hear that. I mean, look, once right. we get into how humans communicate, right, we are quite nuanced guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It should be celebrated. No, I really think uh, it's not even about an inner, inner monologue, although you can use it, if, I suppose, but no, it really is as you take in this person and their drama and you want to do your job and also perhaps be authentic, check both of those boxes. I would suggest the invitation is that you say to them, not with your words, but with the tone that goes along with your words, I've got this, I've got you. And however that comes out is right. That's good. I love the way you ended that. However that comes out is right. Cause I have, I know having talked and you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people over the course of your life, that sounds differently for different people. You can Absolutely. hear one person yell at you that they care about you. And you're like, that's right. And another person very gently says they care about you. You're like, right, that's right. And so I see how it could be. You can't give a rule about needs to be at this decibel level. You need to make sure to open, speak no, from I the mean, diaphragm. You referenced at the beginning of this, a, a stentorial right, voice. Stentorian, right? you know, like orator kind of. Right. But that is a... I mean, you can't even do it without laughing. You did both print, times, print. right? That is a parody. And it's a parody of an old, perhaps outdated form of power, of, of authoritative speech that, quite frankly, represents a standard that fits, I mean, whatever, old white men of 100 years ago who were landowners, yeah, yeah. you know, right? Like, fine. Yeah. That's just literally who was allowed to speak in public 100 years ago if we're being completely practical about how history works. And so here we are, 100 years later, with all of the nuanced complications of our society and how uh, diversity is both celebrated and also in practical terms still held to those old standards, quite frankly. But part of what I'm here to say is that if we are going to be the new sound of power, if we're going to create new standards, actually part of the deal is that there's no single way. That our voices, for each of us, by the way, fun fact, every single one of us sounds different from everyone else on the entire planet. The word in linguistics is idiolect, I-D-I-O, idiolect. We are all unicorns. Uni and why is snowflakes. this? Yeah. And right. And why is this? Because of our life experience, right? We can sound exactly like our twin, but when did we move away? And what room did we get a job in that they didn't? And who did we date? And what did we observe about what worked that they didn't observe because they didn't have to? And every single one of the, as you put it, who do we watch? Who do we just get inspired by and start mirroring? Well, who are our friends? 
who we love the way that they talk or we don't even love it, but we've accidentally picked it up because that's how, you know, that's how habits expand, grow, whatever, move out. So every one of us reflects our life in our voice. And I would love us to live in a world where the way that people have to sound when they're leaders is however they sound, is the reflection of the life they've actually lived. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. I love this because I despise manipulation, sophistry, people who are just learning how to manipulate. I know what you want. I want something. I'm going to say it in the way I think you want to hear it so I can get the things. Very utilitarian instead of what you're talking about. Caring about, once you care about the person and then see how you speak, what tone of voice comes out when you feel caring, when there is caring. Okay, the other side. So that's maybe the less common situation. The other side, and veterinarians have talked about this for decades. There was a time also veterinary medicine, I'll just say this, was uh, predominantly male for a very long time and then slowly shifted. And now first, the graduating classes were majority female. And now the majority of veterinarians in the English-speaking world are now female. So this is not a male-female problem, even though there are more women now who are veterinarians. But there was always a complaint the entire time I've been in veterinary medicine Well, you as a veterinarian are frustrated that the people aren't doing what you're asking them to do. So someone brings in an animal and you tell them, you know what to do. You're the doctor. You're the expert. You've listened to everything they've told you. You've looked at everything. You know what to recommend and you recommend it. And then they say no. And increasingly you get frustrated. Veterinarians oftentimes are conflict averse. So if you say no, well, I guess we're saying no. But that the other thing you said, not revving up the caring, authenticity is say it one more time. I like it so much. <laughs> Do it again. I just want to keep hearing it again. <laughs> Talking about what we care about like we care about it. Okay. They know internally. They know what the medicine is. They know exactly what to do next for this animal. Very clear. And I have to get you to agree to that. And it's going to cost you money or it's scary because I might have to say I have to take the dog or cat back. There's going to be anesthesia involved. The thing sounds scary to you. I have to talk you into this. We say, well, you make your recommendations stronger instead of, well, you might consider this. You need to do this. So they, one way I've heard is changing the words you use. But I want to ask, how does the voice, instead of just changing the words you use, changing your grammar around so you sound more authoritative and sure of yourself, what recommendations do you have if they kind of wind up in situations where they care, they know this is the right thing to do, but the care somehow doesn't come across? So 
I think the strength warmth thing is interesting here as well, because what you're really saying is, if they're not listening to me, do I up my strength or do I up my warmth? Oh, yeah. Okay. If I up yeah, my strength, the next step, I say, yeah. why aren't you listening to me? I'm the expert here. If you up your warmth, you might say, and I'm going to get a little bit into the land of coaching here that offering this as a, you know, who knew that a vet has to also be a coach, but these are moments where, you know, adrenaline is running high and people are not necessarily thinking in their most intellectual, right? They're thinking with their hearts for their little furry beings. Yes. So meeting them there and upping the warmth would be to say, I'm going to offer you some suggestions, you know, whatever, this is the right thing to do. And I bet it feels hard to hear. And I bet, honestly, it's going to take a little bit of bravery to make the decision to say yes. That's it. It's being empathetic for, to that moment. It's hard. But anyway, you know now what to do. And the question is, what do you need to do inside yourself to make sure that you really do that for your animal's sake, for your sake? Convincing only comes in if you care right? So there is a version here, just to play out the thought experiment. There is the version here where you say, with all of the, you know, natural inclination you have and no additional tools, this is my advice, take it or don't. Yes. And then when somebody says, ah, I don't know, it doesn't feel right, there's too much money, but whatever, whatever, you go, okay, well, anyway, you know what to do if you want to save your pet. Honestly, Okay. Like that's a pretty good strategy too. If you're going to properly disengage and just actually move on, if you're going to, you know, hem and haw over it, well then. eh, Okay. If you're worried about the outcome and you're still, yeah. So I think the two options are either, you know, disengage. I have told you what to do. All I can do. You came to me, you paid me money to be here and (laughs) gave you the answer, right? And then create a boundary for yourself. I will choose to not care whether or not they take my advice and I will choose not to take it personally. They've got all their own crap going on. Or option two, you wade into their crap with even a single sentence that you practice. You practice with your favorite, you know, vet friends. You practice based on your personality. Something like, I'm going to give you my, you know, expert take on what to do next. And I also want to acknowledge that this is a hard decision. And how are you feeling about it? And offer them, you know, a minute of your time to talk about how they're feeling. It sounds so easy when you say it, but I know it's not easy because thousands of people all over the country struggle with that conversation, that next step. Yeah, well, it also doesn't feel, I mean, as you say, like what's discussed in school, you know, I mean, even in the medical profession for humans, you know, bedside manner is, is icing, right? Oh, and don't forget to, you know, ugh, act like you care when you talk to them, you know, bless, bless. But you know, if we would like to live in a world where humans are treated like humans, including us, then this is the challenge. This is the opportunity. How do I make those moments feel good for them and for me? Okay, so I, I want to turn a little bit. So we thought a little bit about the brass tacks, what's going on in the exam room, what's going on over the phone, the conversations they have to have one way or the other, where they have to meet people emotionally here. They have to spend, if they decide they want to go the extra step on trying to convince someone or talk to someone more about their feelings, about something they're resisting, choose those. And by the way, to be super clear, okay, the easiest thing you can do if that all feels very overwhelming is literally just say, I, I sense your resistance. Okay. And then just give them space, right? I mean- I sense your resistance and just know that resistance is 
I made this up. So see if this feels right to you. But I, I said this when I taught a course and yeah. was sensing that people would not do the exercises because you know, <laughs> we all are like, the exercises are for other people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I yeah. remember this E.E. E. Cummings quote that I might slightly get wrong, but he says, it takes great courage to grow up and become who you truly are. And I saw that at just the right moment. And I thought, you know, when people have that little moment of resistance, that's what courage feels like. That's what courage feels like. So honoring them with that rather than rolling your eyes is a way to, you know, make that moment work. And everybody wants to be told they're being courageous. You know, it's a sweet way to just say like, oh, you're having big feelings and you're doing great. (laughs) You're humaning today. (laughs) In now a female dominated profession, especially in America and Canada, the C-suite levels of veterinary pharmaceutical companies, large veterinary chain corporate structure oftentimes still reflects a gender lean toward men. So there are more men in these C-suite positions than women. And so because I caught you on that podcast on Chief, which is really kind of talking to women, uh, female executives, I thought, well, what about the women who are frustrated about how they perceive they're perceived or are told they're perceived? And we could go through all the dumb cliches. You lay them out beautifully in the other podcast things like, You need to talk differently. Your posture needs to be different. You need to say different things. You're basically, you're doing it wrong. As your teacher yelled at you, what bad usage. Bad usage. Bad. You're not doing it right. And not just you're not doing it right, but I think in many cases, I think we feel that there's whatever this traditional male way of speaking. Maybe you could talk a little about how you feel that has been in the past and how it sits today. And advice for women who think, I want to move up in corporate hierarchy in these places. And I feel like there's some impediment. I feel there's some impediment to the way I'm communicating or the way I'm talking or the way I'm conducting myself. So the answer. <laughs> oh, you've got, there's just one answer. <laughs> so Is always a combination of what can I do and what does society need to do? Right. Okay. So just to lay that out, right. Of course, when I'm coaching somebody one-on-one and they're right in front of me, it doesn't, really help us to say society needs to change. You don't, even though that may very well be true. But if they're there, it's because they want some tools. So my favorite tool advice is this strength warmth thing. You know, if you are habitually finding that you are being called things like demanding, difficult, it's probably because two things. One, there are a massive amount of biases going on in your space. So I acknowledge that. And two, you may be habitually, just as a habit you've picked up because of the rooms you've been in, coming across a little bit more on the strong dial than you are on the warm dial. So in the past, this advice has been perverted really into, so smile more. I am not here to say smile more. I think that smile more is such a misunderstanding of warmth, right? Warmth is about deciding that you have the capacity to care for the people around you. Warmth is about the capacity to care for the people around you. We actually all do this in our life already, right? For those of you who have children, for those of you who've ever had a partner or a spouse who's had a rough day, for those of you who've ever had a dear friend going through heartbreak, our strength warmth dial is usually pretty solidly balanced in those moments, because we know how to say, I've got this, I'm who you need to come talk to. And I've got you. I've got this. And I've got you. And sometimes in our business personas, we're more lopsided. 
we have had felt like we've had to muscle through and push so much that we bring more of the strength and we forget the warmth. And sometimes it's the opposite, right? If demanding and difficult are not the words you hear, but rather too soft-spoken, pushover, adorable, nice, cute, right? That's usually what happens when we have habitually turned on the warmth more than the strength. So we're really good at saying, oh my God, that's so wonderful. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known what to do in that moment, right? Which by the way, is, it can be an honest statement, but also if it's a habit to constantly deflect, that's a great way to sort of be underusing your strength dial, right? So listen, my favorite advice for all of this stuff, besides really thinking about honoring, that you probably bring both of those into those you know moments when someone needs you, which is a great reminder. The other thing is like, excavate for yourself a bit. What are your sort of accidental archetypes around strength and warmth, specifically strength? Because strength can feel like it has this masculine coded energy. Sometimes we think of a strong person, not a specific one, but the idea of seeming stronger brings up ideas of violence or meanness, this kind of old kind of power that you described up top. And I bet that there's a better archetype for you. Who in your life or in the public eye, would you consider both strong and you really admire them? Because maybe it's time for you to start, you know, finding that kind of strength inside of you and not feeling like you have to revert back to some of these old traditional types of power. And then the other side of it is the culture side, right? So that is something you can do. And then the other part of it is what is so entrenched that either you need to walk away or you need to call it out. And the walking away ends up being a conversation, quite honestly, I have with a lot of C-suite exec types. This space is actually too toxic. What do I, what sort of space would I prefer to be in, right? I mean, this is obviously the great resignation is happening for a reason. (laughs) But the other part of it is the calling out. And sorry to say, but strength and warmth also works really well when you're calling out voice biases, which is what I'm going to label what's really happening here. So if you're getting advice from your CEO that you are, uh, your executive presence needs to be stronger, you can ask for obviously more details about what that really means. But if they say little hmm, telling terms like, I don't know, your voice should be lower or, mm-hmm. you know, stop laughing or, you know, these things that feel like, ah, you're trying to get me to sound like your grandfather, sir. Then, you know, <laughs> a great A great but daring response is to say, you know, I've been reading a lot about voice bias, and I wonder if that's something that we can tackle in this space. Because DEI training is happening everywhere, but there is rarely a voice component to it. And I would, in my dream scenario, love there to be. So that we can just say, you know, we have a long, multiple hundred year history of using our ears to determine who should be taken seriously. And I think that's shifting, but can we shift it on purpose in this work environment? It's interesting when you talk about that. So there is a tendency, an understandable tendency to be angry, aggravated, resentful about having spent decades of your life feeling pushed on by this unfair, feels unfair, unjust voice bias, the press, the cultural bias that's telling you, you need to be this kind of leader and knowing internally that's not the kind of leader you want to be, that maybe you can't find the culture you're looking for. So by the time they hit that point where they're going to do what one option is, you don't quit, but hey, you voice that you're saying there's a voice bias. You said turn up the strength and the warp, warmth. 
in those moments, I would be inclined to just turn on the strength. I'm mad already. I don't want to be warm and have this. I don't want to be open to you. I've got you. I've got this. There's voice bias. The I've got you part. I'm not, I'm aggravated with, I'm aggravated. 100%. I love that. And when I do workshops, I have a whole thing about the resentment side of it. 100%. That is so fair. And I so admire that you brought that up. And my answer is a find people to primal scream with know that, you know, the workspace will be shifted, but only if you're strategic about it. And so B is knowing, know that warmth, upping your warmth, performing that you are willing to care for the people that you're talking to, even if they don't deserve it, is a strategy to get what you want. And obviously, by get what you want, I also think get what we all want, which is a culture shift, right? So yeah, absolutely. Those feelings are so totally valid. And, you know, and. (laughs) Look, because here's the reality. You're either choosing to you know, change the system from within or from without. So if you're going to leave, leave. I super admire that. But if you're going to stay in, what you're also saying is, I'm interested in what levers I can pull. Okay. And so that it's a lever. There was an interesting piece of research that somebody, um, my old boss was just talking to her this morning. I said, I'm going to interview you. She's the one who told me about your podcast. And that's how I got to you and the whole thing. Like, So she introduced me. So she had a bunch of questions, but her best one... She said she just saw some research on women professors, and it talked about looking at their evaluations from students, and they saw their evaluation kind of peaks in their 30s, and then they saw this downhill trend, and there's you have to guess, but they she thought maybe they're starting – they have power – and uh, they're starting to sort of use it. And like, I don't need to be nice. To, I don't need to be nice all the time. And I don't need to bend around everyone. I'm starting to kind of take my space. I, I'm owed. There's space around me. I'm taking the space that feels right to me. And that that turns some people off. What is your take on that? How much of that do you think is, I mean, I don't know. I want you to speculate on the fact that it seems friggin' unfair that some of these women in positions of authority or intellectual or however intellectual authority that they're being perceived worse as they get older because they just don't. Their power goes I up. I mean, with the data points you've offered, the okay, amount of right. interpretation is so open. And look, it I'm, is. Into it. It's, I'm into it. I'm into I'm willing to wade in. But okay. Knowing that we don't know. Right, right. No, no way. Because here's another take. Yeah. When we're in our 30s, we are at the very, very high end of being in the same generation as our students. We are at opposite ends of a single generation, perhaps. I mean, 18 to 34 is often how, you know, so you're kind of in the in the millennials were discussed. You're yep, in the in group. The group. Yep. You're in the in group. So you're an older, wiser, older sister type, you know, older, wiser, but still can match linguistically the conversation style. So perhaps I mean, this is a a less kind assessment to the women professors. It's not about when you get older, you get more power and that's off-putting, but rather that you are not doing the work to continue to meet your students where they are and uh, seem like a mentor to them. And actually, in a way, I think you did actually hit on that a bit. That's a theory. That's a theory, which is not to say that like, you know, once you hit 40, you're unable to connect with 20 year olds, but it is saying that if you're interested in connecting with 20 year olds, you have to be intentional about it. 
And how do you bring more power, more I've got this, while also I've got you? This is perfect because that leads right into an issue that I have heard for many years with managers and leaders where the, again, we've seen it before. That's fascinating that you're talking. I hadn't thought about the fact that the managers and the people they work with, even if they're at the far end, they're still kind of nestled in the, they speak using the same slang, they feel close. And as that drifts out and generations come behind them, they start getting bitter and angry at these yes, newfangled kids yes, coming indeed. through. And we should all be aware of that. And I speak as somebody in my 40s, to be clear, I am very adamant about fighting against ageism. So I don't mean to suggest that everybody, you know, 40 and over is an old hag who's unable to change. <laughs> right. But I am curious about the, you know, generational cycles we tend to get in. And here's what I really mean. As I was writing this book, Whenever I would speak to a woman, my mother's generation in her 70s, and say I'm writing a book on voices and power, and sometimes for them so that they, you know, felt more of an instant connection, I would say women and voices and power. They would say, basically without exception, oh, thank God, girls these days are just ruining their lives with these voices, <gasps> right? Performing wow. a bias toward that old standard of, you know, white male rich power right. without realizing that they were performing it right in front of me, you know, and that that's actually the entire thesis of my book is that that is a faulty way of deciding who should have power. Did they always feel that way? Who knows? Did they acquire it in their 70s? Who knows? But there are trends that are absolutely undeniable in who I would talk to about this book and what their reaction would be. So my version of that is what, again, when my dad talked about prescriptive and descriptive grammar, he said, look, I'm teaching you the proper way to speak, not because it's better, but because the rich kids that go to Ivy League schools, you're not going to go to, you'll go to some party or you'll be working with them and you'll know you can switch to that. You can speak any way it's you want. Tool. There's nothing wrong with any way you speak, but you're going to need to switch if you want something. And I'm with you. In the acting world, we call this choices, right? Okay, so now we have choices. more choices. Now we have yeah, more, choices, more choices. Right. Right. And absolutely. But here's what I'm interested in as okay. sort of a, you know, revolutionary in this space, yeah. by which I don't mean that my ideas are the newest. Maybe I'm, you know, bringing some stuff mainstream, but I mean revolutionary as in like I'm literally carrying a torch, metaphorically carrying a torch, but uh, it feels literal a lot of the time. <laughs> here's what I think. Okay. We can shame-free use those tools when we need to in those rooms that we need to use them in. And always keep an eye on when we can use other tools, when we can spend the bit of power or privilege that we have to model a kind of leadership that the world needs and would do better with. Because there's a lot going on in the world these days, right? There's a lot of human rights crises at home and abroad. And so much of what is icky is that the wrong people are in charge. And how did they get that way? Well, they sounded the part. Right. <laughs> so I'm curious on a really, really, you know, light the torches level. When we change what power sounds like to each of us, we change yeah. who has it. And that's for each of us to read the room. What tool do I need to use, right? Do I need to talk with those fancy words so that those people who are holding the key to my, you know, future will take me seriously instantly because voice bias is real and people decide within eight seconds what your socioeconomic class is? Okay. Okay. 
I'll use it today. But when I get more power in maybe even just the next room, not 10 years from now, but the next room, what can I do to make the world a better place? What can I do to vanquish voice bias where I am? Okay. And I want to flip that over to the older people who feel, so those 70 year olds who are in veterinary practices, the old male owners yeah, or sorry, the 70 year old sorry women. Sorry about that guys. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, no, uh-huh. Well, it's a reality. The older veterinarians came from a time when men were more prevalent in the position. So that's just how it is. And it's shifting. But it's interesting when we talk about power, they're aggravated by the young people about how they do things, about whatever they do with their technology, about whatever slang they use, about whatever their work habits are. And they've forgotten long ago that they were the ones that people complained about. When it comes to learning, hearing voice and being irritated in the way these older male practice owners are and the way it sounds like these 70-something women are irritated by the way this language, we are using this language, this irritating way. From your perspective, is there anything you count, any advice you offer people to open up again to how people are speaking? And even if you don't like it, to see if you can figure out why they're saying that or why they're doing it that way. Is there anything you tell people to just sort of open up? Yeah, you know, the simple answer is check your bias. So if you're doing that in any other part of your life, if you grew up without any people of color and now you are surrounded with people of color and you've learned more about cultural differences... If you have done the work in any other realm, that's the roadmap. How do you do the work? How do you decide? What I'm really offering with this voice bias perspective is that it's worth doing. That when you notice somebody's voice annoys you, you don't jump to discounting them. But instead you jump to, ah, this is an opportunity for me to check my bias. They don't sound like me. Humans are meaning makers, right? And we will always tell the story. Are you an us or are you a them? What you're doing in that moment is you're theming them. Okay, well, that's interesting. Brains will do that, but I have control over what I do next. Yeah. At the end, I'm only going to ask the thing that we've avoided the whole time. Is there, when you talked about your own discovering your voice, that you got this news that everybody has a way the body is sort of designed to sound, and that's sort of authentic. And as you get older, you've listened to more people and you can hear people wind and twist their voices in different ways mm-hmm. for fun, f- for pleasure, for other people to get ahead. Is there any advice you give people to find out? Could they just sit at home and figure out where is their real voice? Where's the thing that wherever that is in the register, the one that's most comfortable, even though they don't use it? How do you find that register? I just, these questions just bring me so much joy. <laughs> so um, on a practical level, optimum pitch I referenced earlier, the way to figure out your own optimum pitch, as a speech pathologist would tell you, is literally just catch yourself saying the mm-hmm of affirmative that we do when someone asks a really low stakes question. You know, are you ready to go out? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So does your actual speaking voice match that? Interesting. That's a good starting place. This other, you know, more meaty part of your question. (laughs) My favorite advice, if you are thinking, what is my real voice? How do I fight? You know, like it's, it's a version of the authentic question, right? Okay. Which version of me? Who am I? What what even am I doing on this planet? Right? Notice what you are like around your absolutely favorite people around whom you have nothing to prove. I think most of us have a nothing to prove voice and a something to prove voice. And the nothing to prove voice is often when we're quite honestly not being self-observant. So it's hard to actually think, what am I like around, right? (laughs) So I acknowledge that, right? If you feel resistance, welcome to the courage. But that is so telling. Who are we like when we are with people we love, 
And we have what's called in the theater world an urge to communicate. In this case, I mean literally one of those, oh my God, you'll never guess who I ran into at Trader Joe's. <laughs> yeah. That version of you is very telling and probably could make it into more rooms than you're bringing. Uh, my last question specifically about the book. I feel like in hearing about the career trajectory here and in other things I've heard you talk about, and then where I feel like this book, asking people to think about these things, who authentically you are, and then how you're going to bring yourself to the world and make the world a better place. I mean, it's all super inspiring. Is there somewhere in there where you shifted from thinking about, was it just that speech pathology experience where you shifted from thinking about my outer self as the thing I'm using to get ahead toward who the hell am I? So was it really the speech pathology or was there anything else in there where you're like, I don't think I'm me anymore. What the heck happened? Hmm. No, okay. no. I don't think it was quite that, but there were definitely flashpoints along the path because when I was dealing with the voice drama, that was almost 20 years ago now. And then I went into coaching actors and I've worked with a bunch of movie stars. And I bring that up because... Another answer to your question is, I've always been curious about the relationship between how we talk and how we get treated. I mean, I loved My Fair Lady when I was like a seven-year-old. My Fair Lady is about a girl who learns to talk in a different accent and her future opens up. Yeah. I mean, was I thinking about that literally when I was seven? Maybe not, but I was definitely thinking about how does the world work? Yeah. How do people, people around each other? And then here I was sitting at tables with movie stars working on theoretically – just the sounds, right? Vowels and consonants and the musicality right. of spoken language. Sometimes English was their second language and we were working on opening up their sounds so that they'd be clearer to, you know, quote unquote, middle America. Sometimes we were actually putting in a regional specific accent on for the story. You know, this is an actor from Canada and they need to sound like they're from a specific area of the South and they want to do it authentically. But inevitably inside of those conversations, other more vulnerable intimate stuff would come up around their own relationship to their voice. And then during the 2018 midterms, I volunteered to coach women who are running for office. MoveOn.org found me and they were like, we have so many first-time <laughs> candidates who are wonderful, who deserve to win, but they're not doing great when they get in front of the microphone in front of many, many, many people and have to convince them, to use that word, from the uh, you know exam room. So I started to figure out my kind of philosophy at that point, I think, just in practice from working with people and figuring out what does give them a real sense of permission to really show up as their favorite version of themselves. And I then, of course, had my own version of that myself. Now that I, you know, I was a behind the scenes-er and now I'm doing podcast <laughs> interviews and, you know, promoting a book globally. So... It was never quite, I've lost myself, you know, yeah. the, that part of your question, but I have always been interested in how do I, how do any of us speak in the moments that matter in a way that both works, as in people hear us, and feels good. The feels good, I think, is, is a real additive element to how any of us think about public speaking, because we're just used to thinking of it as being a terrible feeling. And then there's just people who are just magically great at it. But otherwise, ugh, I'd rather you know be in the coffin than give the eulogy. And I'm here to say, well, yeah, there's long histories of standards that we feel like we're up against. Plus, there's nervous systems. 
But what if we centered joy in those opportunities we have to talk about what we care about, like we care about it to other people so that they might? And I love the fact that you said with those politicians, because I imagine they were getting messages that you're not polling high enough. The audiences don't like you. You need to change. And if your approach at that time is kind of build this new thing of we're going to build a version of yourself you like. So you want something that's effective, but it'll be one that feels right to you. And balance, I know balancing those things is hard. It feels we like go such one a gamble, right? It feels yes, like such scary. a gamble. And yet, and maybe this is a good spot to end. And yet, yeah. who do each of us like listening to? Who do we watch a, a clip of a speech, whether it's a formal one in front of a podium or just a moment, you know, where somebody answers a question, whatever, in any context, who do we watch? We see that moment and we feel physically like we want to share it because boring speeches don't go viral. And often those fear moments, right? It feels like such a risk to be ourselves, to bring our joy, all these things is a way of saying, oh, I'd be much more of a straightforward, successful candidate if I was more boring. If people didn't know how weird I truly am, I mean, hello, anybody listening, right? We've all had that thought. And then we all think, okay, we don't have this thought. I'm putting this word onto it. We all think instead, how much more generic can I be? How can I shave off my weird and be generic? That's not how we think about it, but that's what we're doing when we're like, it's too much of a gamble to be myself. And look, every room is different. And I am a huge... I look at everything through the lens of social justice. So I do not mean to be irresponsible and be like, be yourself no matter what room. But I am interested in what rooms we can be more of ourselves in than we were yesterday or than our grandmothers were. Samara Bay's book, Permission to Speak, hits bookshelves February 7th. And that wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave a review. Tell your friends in VetMed about us. Learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you.